Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shadow Sex. Oh my god, my waveform is like an erection problem right now. <laughs> I'm reducing this. Oh my god, where's the grip? Oh, okay, that the whole thing is my way. Okay, fine. Welcome to another episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I am Nima Mihanyar, and joining me as always is my partner in crime, a man who likes his women smarter than his appliances, but being a mere mortal, he is willing to make an exception for the right redhead. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jorge La Marca. That's kind of mean in a nutshell. That was beautiful, man. Thank you. <laughs> How are you doing, Jorge? Excellent. I'm cheating today. Uh, just food, nothing, nothing. Just I'm not continuing the theme of the redheads here. Yeah. Just saying, okay, at home alone, I'm eating Nutella, you know, I'm watching people beat each other to a pulp on TV. It's kind of glorious, this. My life used to be like this the whole time, but then, you know, I grew up and stuff. UFC and Nutella, that's the way to go. Absolutely. <laughs> So I want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the Shadow Sec podcast. So before we kick it off, I'm going to give our standard disclaimer for all of our listeners that obviously the views and opinions that Jorge and I share on here are our own and do not represent those of our employers, current or present, or any group or organizations that we are associated with. So with that being said, I hope that you're all doing well and uh, we have a very interesting show lined up for all of you, which we hope that you guys will enjoy with a number of very interesting articles with the first article coming from Krebs on Security and its title is, Is Your Browser Extension a Botnet Backdoor? The title, by the way, is a bit over the top. I'm actually quite surprised that it took us 11 episodes to bring anything from Krebs on Security. I was actually thinking the same thing when I actually saw this. I was like, why have we not got Brian Krebs on here yet? I mean, he is quite prominent. This is true. He must be dying to come on the show. Of course. You know, I keep on having to move his email to the spam folder all the time. So, so is the world of podcasting. <laughs> so far, it's pretty sweet. Exactly. But we know that obviously Brian Krebs is obviously an investigative journalist and he is known for his deep dives on topics. And this one, which is actually related to a topic that we have been discussing over the past two weeks, which is obviously browser extensions, explores sort of the struggles that developers face and the choices that they make, which may obviously not be in the best interest for their users. But of course, they have to survive and try to make a living. But it still also highlights the risks of extensions and why you should always be vigilant when you're installing or searching for them. So he starts off by talking about a company that rents out access to more than 10 million web browsers so their clients can hide their true internet address. And they actually built this anonymizing network by actually paying browser extension makers to quietly include their code into their extensions. Now the company in question that actually pays the makers to do this is called Infactia. Infatica. <laughs> oh. Emphatica. <laughs> you had an emphatica there, yeah? 
<laughs> it actually sounds like a disease. They are a disease, so they're appropriately named. This is true. They are kind of a disease, but they are not illegal per se. And they are really just one company in a growing industry who are actually trying to entice developers who maintain popular browser extensions. Now, it's obviously not difficult to understand the motivations that developers have, and Krebs actually highlights the plight of one developer, but it clearly is a story that many developers who hear it would be very familiar with. So it's a story of how Nguyen, who is the developer behind ModHeader, which is an extension used by more than 400,000 people to test the functionality of websites. Now, this work by him was obviously a labor of love, as many developers can attest to. But in this case, Nguyen found that his extension grew in popularity. So obviously, he was spending increasing amounts of his time and money supporting the extension. And he tried to include ads into it to help offset his costs, which I can obviously understand. But predictably, his users protested loudly against it and obviously he reversed it. He told Krebs that he's actually spent the last 10 years building this extension and so far has had no luck monetizing it. Now, when someone spends this much time and labor on something that they don't get compensated for, it is understandable that when a company comes along and offers a financial reward to them, that it could be very attractive. In the case of Nguyen, he said that he actually ignored multiple requests from different companies offering to pay him to insert their code, mainly because of the intrusive nature of the code, which gave those firms the ability to inject what they wanted into his programs and extension and obviously that meant onto the user's machine. In the case of Infactia, he found their code was fairly straightforward by comparison to the others. He said that it only allowed the company to route web requests through the user's browser and did not try to access more sensitive components, such as their stored passwords or cookies, or actually viewing the user's screen as other companies had requested and wanted to do. Now, for its part, Infactia actually seeks out extensions who have at least 50,000 users and extension makers who agree to incorporate their code can earn anywhere from $15 to $45 each month for every 1,000 active users. So Nguyen, who had 400,000 users, stood to make a good amount of money. But after a few days of trying it out, he actually got a lot of negative user reviews from people concerned that their browsers were being used as a proxy for going to obviously not so good places like porn sites or worse places. So again, he relented and he removed it. So obviously, while users enjoy having free extensions, people have to keep in mind that these people also need to make a living. So if you don't want ads, then these people need to find alternative means to make money. And more and more of them are being approached by these type of companies, asking them to insert their code silently. So at this point, it is clear that listeners should be extremely cautious about installing extensions and only do so after you've done adequate research and not because your Uncle Tom suggested you to do it. <laughs> yeah, so just going over the, the architecture of this Infatica solution. In essence, what this company is offering is the ability to leverage what they call domestic proxies. 
for masquerading traffic. And they cite as use cases both research and tracking. So let's say you need to understand how specific web services, APIs, and so on behave when called from multiple domestic connections. That's something you can do. Or if you have to anonymize your scraping or your activity for research and gathering and tracking purposes, you can use this tool. I think the whole premise is very shady because in the end, what you're doing is you are utilizing people's domestic connections. Did I say domestic connections? I apologize. I meant domestic connections against their will, right? There's actually more to this. This carries on, obviously, the theme that we've been discussing for three podcasts already about the extension ecosystem, how extensions take lots and lots of work and are not easy to monetize and so on. In this particular case, this anonymizer proxy uses the Chrome extension in users' browsers as, again, a proxy, right, for customers' traffic, which requires anonymization for a variety of reasons. Their website cites, as I mentioned, tracking research, but the founder of this place is a gentleman called Vladimir Fomenko, and he has been reported upon several times alongside stories like King Servers, which, of course, he has seeked to disassociate himself and his brand from. However, in 2016, hackers suspected of working for the Russian security services compromised databases for election systems in Arizona and Illinois, respectively. And six of the eight internet addresses identified by the FBI is tied back to King servers. Again, the guy was associated to it. Sergei Mikhailov, the former deputy chief of Russia's top anti-cybercrime unit, was accused by the Russian authority of tipping off the FBI to information about Fomenko and King servers. In 2019, this gentleman was convicted and sentenced to 22 years in a penal colony. So I think the entire thing just radiates seediness, both the tactic, the premise, the way it's actually inserted into extensions, etc. Brian Krebs does a really comprehensive job explaining the situation end to end. And he actually closes with, there's a great many high double digit percent extensions that have significant amount of users that are either abandoned or very seldom updated. And the reason why that might be, is very clearly because the developers just couldn't keep up with maintenance that such an extension would require after it goes over a threshold XYZ of popularity. Because in the end, the more users, the more use cases, the more edge cases, the more need for maintenance, etc. So he's highlighting a very likely reasonable correlation, which is the more users an abandoned extension has, the more likely the author is to sell, delegate, in other words, compromise the maintenance of the extension just to satisfy the public, but at the same time, make it worth their while. So really good story. I actually had no idea this domestic proxy thing was this sophisticated in terms of product because this company, as you mentioned as well, is just on another level in terms of their offering, their integration, their brand, and so on. Like if you go to the website, it just looks like People Data Labs or any one of these, you know, fairly shady services, but that has this facade of legitimacy for the untrained eye, if that makes sense. Totally, exactly. And I also do agree with you on the fact that it really spells shadiness, everything sort of that this company does and it stands for. And after you just gave that profile about its sort of founder, then that just goes to further reinforced as well. And 22 years in a penal colony in Russia is probably one of the last places you really ever want to end up for any type of crime. I just had to say penal colony. Penal colony is like, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, something that came to mind, I really don't know how to articulate this and I may do a poor job of it, but let me just throw the thought at you and let me know what you think. Do but it. 
As somebody that loves software and loves uh, developing software and reading code and code review and so on, I honestly do not think or expect that all of my side work in coding will net me an economic benefit. And I do appreciate some of these extensions take a lot of work to maintain, but at the same time, sometimes you just contribute to the community and then benefit in other ways. Like if you can claim to be the author of The Great Suspender, that is a prestigious thing to claim in your CV, in job applications, in papers. It also exposes you to valuable data and crash information and details of the environment. It puts you in a good position to hunt for bugs that are worth money. I'm just saying directly monetizing the code base isn't all there is to it. So I think it's a bit of a simplistic view to assume, oh, they're not getting paid directly for maintaining the extension. They have no other recourse but to get paid by Infatica, right? I think that's a very simplistic view. I do understand as well, but because I think that there are many labors of love that people do. And for example, I know that you are also sort of an avid developer who've had projects, quite big ones. I know that you obviously always do them out of a labor of love and you put a lot of effort and energy into them, which obviously shows in the end result. And uh, obviously when you put that much type of effort into it or anyone who does so, they obviously deserve to actually be compensated in some way for the effort because at the end of the day, they also have sort of bills that they need to pay. They eventually get families that they need to raise and they need to obviously be able to make a living. And if it takes up a considerable amount of time, then they need to be able to somehow support themselves on that. And it's one of the big things in the industry right now, which I think a lot of core tools that we in cybersecurity and IT generally depend upon are actually surprisingly managed by very small teams, which are actually reasonably underfunded. So for example, some of the most popular ones I think were OpenSSH, which I know has a very small team actually managing it. And they are always looking for extra funding or any way that can help them or something that I actually found out very recently which actually surprised me was the very very popular Linux tool curl which obviously you could say is almost a backbone of today's IT projects and usage is actually managed by one guy in Sweden its creator actually he's extremely vocal active in conferences actually a really good afternoon of internet nonsense is just looking up the guy and listening to what he has to say he's very articulate he has a blog as well in which he talks about all kinds of topics and you know in computing but also security and philosophy and so on i think the guy is really interesting to follow i guess my point with all of this is okay let, let me try to phrase it this way there's a great youtube video if you youtube the sentence steve job replies to hater or comment it's just a guy that asks a question in an abrasive tone to Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs starts answering with a platitude or a kind of a mantra, like you can't please everybody all the time, whatever. But then he pauses and then he goes, you know what? I made a mistake and that's okay. Because in the end, if you want to make money, in this case, he was citing the example of selling whatever many billion dollars in product a year. That's his goal, yeah? My goal is to keep below 2,000 calories. His goal is selling $8 billion a year. There's levels to the game. But the point is, he was saying, how do I actually put together a cohesive vision that allows me to build technology for the customer, with the customer in mind, and building back from the customer perspective? So if your goal is to make money, or if your goal is to make a living and have your lifestyle match your research ambitions, you need to be thinking 
in a very customer-centric way. So if you build an extension out of utility or love for the community, etc., I just don't buy the notion that it is unfair that you have not been directly compensated for that work. Because in the end, if you're an expert capable of building one of those great apps, right? If you have that level of expertise, clearly you can make good money as a consultant, good money as a contractor, good money as basically double-digit professions. If you look at the rest of society working outside of technology, how many people have those chances? I'm just thinking a bit more holistically about the proposition of, I have all of these skills that I've built. The only way that is worth my while is if I'm paid directly through donations or whatever. I'm just saying, and you know what? We're actually taking shots at the GNU guys (laughs) in the previous show. If that metric were actually fair and true, the GNU people would be triple billionaires because they, of course, GCC, all the core utils, etc. Like, come on. Of course, exactly. I mean, my concern there is not that they want to be financially compensated because they clearly do it out of a passion and a love. But if they do the hard work, then I try to sort of recognize it. So, I mean... Obviously, I don't donate to every single tool that I make use of. But at the same time, for example, I try to make a yearly contribution to the Wikipedia Foundation whenever they do their fundraising. Because, of course, that is a very vital source of information. And it's obviously freely available to everyone. And it's extremely useful. So I always try to at least donate a little bit to that every year. I've actually exchanged all of my expenditure in things like Spotify and Netflix and so on to individual creators everything like i also donate to wikipedia because i i really want them to spend you know tens of thousands of dollars a year creating yet more templates for more absurdly specific websites that they you know include i want them to beat the two billion template milestone they have Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but on top of that like i I don't know i i pay for podcasts i pay for applications I, i pay for example one that i'm very happy to sort of shout out even if it's worthless at the moment is fairmail for example i pay for fairmail that's a wonderful email client i pay for many i basically have shifted all of my spending habits from big corporations to individual creators i agree it's just that as i said that is not an expectation you should have when you embark on the free software journey just saying Very true, very true. So moving on to our next story. It also comes from Krebs on security because of course we're trying to make up for our lack of Krebs in the past. And it's titled, at least 30,000 US organizations newly hacked via holes in Microsoft's email server. Now the article is related to recently addressed zero-day vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange Server, which were four high-severity ones, and these were actually true zero-days, as in exploits that were already being exploited by threat groups before Microsoft knew about them and patched them. Now, security researchers warn that multiple cyber espionage groups are already exploiting these, with a lot of reporting highlighting the Chinese state-sponsored group called Hafnium. But some of the other groups include Lucky Mouse, Tick, and Calypso. Now, in the three days since the patch was actually sent out, the Hafnium espionage group has dramatically stepped up attacks on vulnerable and unpatched exchange servers worldwide, with the article in Krebs actually highlighting that at least 30,000 organizations across the US have already been hacked. 
Now they say that these groups were focused on stealing emails from victim organizations and in each incident, the intruders left behind a web shell to ensure continued access even if the company applied the patch at a later date. So it's important to know that even if you do patch the vulnerability, you have to still look for the IOCs and if you do find any, then you're gonna be in for a very big cleanup job. And some things that they said to look out for was to check your system underscore web folder for any suspicious ASPX files with names such as shell, support, ASP.NET or any other eight character file names that look out of place for you over there. Now, a government cybersecurity expert did say that these attacks were actually uncharacteristic of the kind of nation state level hacking typically attributed to China, which normally tends to be quite focused on compromising specific strategic targets. But this particular attack seems in his words, reckless and out of character for it to be this indiscriminate, where they're going for almost anyone with an exposed and vulnerable server. Now, there are already some freely available tools to help you detect vulnerable servers. And one of these tools from Microsoft's Kevin Beaumont is also available on GitHub and we'll make sure that we link it in the show notes. Now, the cybersecurity industry and researchers who are actually monitoring this are raising this as a critical situation and some even raising concerns that the damage done through this may actually end up eclipsing the damage done by the SolarWinds intruders. And in the US, CISA has issued an emergency directive ordering all federal departments and agencies running the vulnerable exchange service to update or disconnect the product from their networks. And needless to say that obviously all companies should prioritize this vulnerability and patch it immediately and look for the indicators of compromise in their environment. This was a big one this week, but it also came off the tail of a heightened state of vigilance and sort of due diligence capability planning because of all of the really high profile stuff that has happened. Microsoft, as usual, reacted in their typical, I would say outstanding fashion. They released several resources. Let me just back up and just enumerate the vulnerabilities in this particular update, which was an off-band update. So it's not a Patch Tuesday one, but rather it warranted an out of, is it out of band? Sorry, my English is not. Out of band? Out of band? Out of band. So it's- That highlights <laughs> the significance. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So there's four vulnerabilities. There's CVE 26855, they're all 2021, yeah? 26855, sorry, I can't speak English today. So 26855, <laughs> right? It's a server-side request forgery. So given the right malformed header, it actually is an unauthenticated RCE affecting several flavors of exchange on-premise. The other three are easily exploitable once this one actually was successful. And the thing with 26855 is there is no puck in the wild, but once you know the secret sauce, so how to actually contaminate the header, it is highly repeatable and reliable. And that's the reason for the really high CVSS score. I believe in this case it's 9.1 for this particular one. The other two allow, so 26857 
is an insecure deserialization vulnerability that allows for remote code execution on their system. And then the other two, which is 26.858 and 27.065, allow arbitrary writes on the file system. So it is understood that 26.855 is the gateway and then the rest are just pivoting points for further exploitation and so on. Microsoft, on their end, off the back of this out-of-band patch, has released specific guidance about how to patch, which is in this case relatively easy compared to other examples of the same gravity. Then some mitigations for organizations that are unable to patch right away. So those are mostly about enabling the URL rewriting module for IIS so that if you get a request with a malformed header, you can just rewrite the request to just be kind of immunized to that particular, which of course is not helpful if you're already compromised. This is a mitigation in case you can't update but you haven't been compromised, so you can actually mitigate and shield your server from receiving this malformed header. Then the rest are about disabling the services that are abused by the other three vulnerabilities. On top of that, Microsoft has released some common attack sequences complete with IOCs. And in this particular case, that also leads to hunting queries, which they've included also in the MS365 hunting GitHub repo, which contains some Custo queries for Azure and so on. So you can actually hunt in your environment. It should be noted, and this is something that Brian Krebs actually linked in the comments to his post, that most environments, including big deployments in Azure, come from a legacy background of extension premise. So it's quite difficult to find a customer that exclusively has Office 365 email, so Exchange Online, right? So typically, and this is something that one of Krebs readers actually put in the comments in that particular thread, Microsoft even incentivizes this federation of identity between on-prem and O365, including making the local the sort of on-prem exchange, traditional exchange licenses as a bundle with their Azure enterprise services. So uh, I think if a company thinks that because most of their email traffic is done on Exchange Online, they should also take into account that if they have Exchange servers exposing the port 443 to the internet and running that particular version, they will still be vulnerable to this particular sequence of attack. Uh, something else to note is that there's an NSE script, so an Nmap script to do a quick validation also on GitHub. And yeah, uh, Microsoft also included some hunting recommendations, as I mentioned, complete with a link that takes you directly to Sentinel. So you can actually just click and see the query run in your environment. So in this case, as we mentioned with SolarWinds, yeah, just, you know, no excuse for not clicking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is a great time to be a defender. <laughs> <laughs> it's either a great time or an incredibly stressful time, I agree. <laughs> but I agree with you definitely that Microsoft has been doing sort of a good job in the communication and advice area. But as you did mention as well, one thing that they did mention was they were very quick to highlight the fact that if you're using the cloud version of email, then you're okay. So so don't worry, you're completely safe. And it really highlighted that. But as you mentioned, any organization really out there who's obviously using the online email version probably has it supplemented with also an on-prem device or some sort as well. It is a good time to mention that Nima and I are working on a defender's perspective on Azure because it's just the whole history with maintaining ADFS. So essentially one of the three ways to integrate Azure with your on-prem environment all of those have trade-offs, but two of them specifically present 
unique and fairly easily exploitable opportunities to pivot into your Azure environment. So we, we actually put together a quick thread model of Azure, which we'll be fleshing out over the coming week. And we're hoping to do a Defender Perspective segment on that next week. And Microsoft is giving us ample material for that as well. Thank you, Microsoft. But in regards to this, Microsoft did also happen to highlight in their communication that this particular attack is not linked to the SolarWinds breach, which they were also affected by in the past when the intruders were able to gain access to some of their code repositories. But as I understand, they weren't able to edit any of them, only view the actual code there. And Brian Krebs also in his article did mention that some of those tools that I mentioned that you can use to identify if you have any vulnerable servers he actually ran some of these tools which are available for checking for compromise and actually saw a portion of victim lists and said that the backdoors were verifiably present on the networks of thousands of US organizations which included banks, credit unions, nonprofits, telecommunication providers, public utilities and police fire and rescue units. So it is so cool that they've actually included in their hunting material the most common intrusion scenario. Because as you mentioned, there's a great deal of opportunism in this particular hack because as all hell broke loose, they're trying to get the most out of their looting potential. It, it actually seems, just looking at the Microsoft material, it actually appears that they're prioritizing two things. Harvesting accounts, harvesting email. So that they're actually doing a large scale information gathering and reconnaissance effort through these vulnerabilities. And there's plenty, of course, of web shell and remote access activity, but they seem to be prepending all of the rest of their tactics with information gathering, which of course is consistent with what you were saying earlier. Exactly, yeah. So moving on to our next story, and this one is probably not in the realm of high severity as our other stories, but this one actually did sort of stand out to me a little bit. And it's actually coming from the Hacker News. The title of the story is, why do companies fail to stop breaches despite soaring IT security investment? Now this article looks back at 2020 and reflects that it's been a grim year for personal data protection as it marked a new record in the number of leaked credentials and personal information. They said that a whopping 20 billion records were stolen in a single year, which is an increase of 66% from the 12 billion in 2019. And they said that the trend seems to fit an exponential curve with 2021 having the potential to even marginalize these numbers thanks to the potential fallout from the SolarWinds hack. Now to highlight this, they actually gave some examples such as Zoom having lost half a million passwords by April, Oracle leaking billions of web tracking data in June, and Joe Biden's campaign app exposing millions of user sensitive voter data. And these are just some of the examples that they actually gave. Then the article asks the question with its own subheading in bold, and it asks, why are companies and organizations still failing? And then prefixes that to say that this trend of data breaches is quite disappointing when compared to the staggering $120 billion in global IT security spending, which is an amount that year on year actually has seen continued growth, which actually is a very good thing. Now, 
I do understand the point that this article is making. And it does say the only possible solution to this inconsistency rests in user awareness and the possibility that existing technologies are missing something substantial. But I'm going to also go a little further and say that I think that this article is taking something rather complex and oversimplifying it by the fact that they are clearly linking the total yearly spending on cybersecurity worldwide to a single metric being data breaches and then passing judgment that cyber is still failing, which is wholly unfair in my opinion. Because when they say that an organization is failing to stop breaches from happening in the first place, I don't think that they're taking into consideration their perception shift that the industry has actually had from having a mentality of stop breaches at all costs to an assume breach mentality, which actually was a fundamental change that we had and it was for the better. Because in the past, when we tried to stop breaches from happening at all costs, companies were focused almost entirely on perimeter defenses and they didn't put much thought on the inner network, which is what led to the cybersecurity joke of security being like an egg, hard on the outside but soft on the inside. But when the change in mentality happened, we had a fundamental shift in priorities and we saw significant investment not only in perimeter defenses, but now also in inner defenses with better detection capabilities being deployed, stricter network segregations being enforced and much better identity and access management controls in place. Because obviously everyone can agree that in the 90s and early 2000s, we saw network isolation almost being a myth and almost all users having admin access to their devices and patch management being almost unheard of. And nowadays, obviously breaches still do happen, but companies are overall in a much better position to first of all detect the attack, secondly to weather the attack, and finally to be able to recover from it. And this is where the $120 billion in IT security spending has gone to. It's gone to make the overall cyber posture and culture within all enterprises stronger and more resilient to attacks, which is actually money very well spent. I don't even think that figure is so big. I think if you look at industries like fraud, automation, crime detection in different ways, or if you actually look at other types of heuristic engines and, and business intelligence and so on, the spending in cybersecurity is not that big. That number is not that impressive to me it looks impressive at face value obviously i mean it wouldn't surprise me that's the value that they obviously highlighted in the article and i think you're probably right again as this article is obviously sort of oversimplifying a quite a complex situation i wouldn't be surprised if they maybe put in an additional funding from different areas which may have loose connections to cybersecurity, such as fraud prevention but i think that obviously overall the industry is in a much better situation than it was back in the 90s and 2000s. And a lot of that is really down to the hard fought struggle that a lot of our peers in the industry have had to have with senior management in order to obviously get cybersecurity, the visibility it needs and the representation it needs at the board level. And now companies are obviously taking it a lot more serious because they understand the impact and risks that it could have if they don't 
don't actually prepare adequately for themselves and have the necessary controls. And that goes hand in hand with adequate spending. It's also a cultural battle. I love the unnecessary spending because let's face it, regret spend exists everywhere. To me, a lot of the regret spend is due to product-based thinking. I think when we were talking about the ransomware task force, which I believe is yet to kick off, despite the, the kickoff it had, <laughs> I actually looked at a lot of the slated contributions and so on and the people participating, and I got the feeling, right, I hope this isn't contributing to product-based thinking. In the end, it's all about... It's much like the age-old debate of automation, right? People thinking we should just replicate what humans do much, much faster. We should re-engineer to facilitate automation as something organic. So you can actually make that point about every bit of transformation, digital or not. But in the end, you're going to spend a lot of money. Like, like security companies will take your money. You know what I mean? It has to come hand by hand with every intention to change the company culture and invest in human capital. If not, that also takes money, by the way. It's not for free. No, of course. And I completely agree with you on the regret spending analysis, because I'm sure there's a lot of companies who were properly sold the golden ore solution in one magic black box that will solve all of your cybersecurity needs. And you just need to obviously spend one million dollars for it. And one year later, they were popped through a phishing email that a user probably opened. So moving on to our next story, which is actually going in line with our privacy segments. This one comes from MacRumors.com and it's titled EU prepares to charge Apple in antitrust dispute with Spotify. So what this is actually about is that indications suggest strongly that the EU is actually poised to move to charge Apple in an antitrust investigation. And this is hot off the heels of the UK competition regulator on Thursday also launching an antitrust investigation into Apple as well. Actually, the EU has a number of them going already. I think it's four at the time of this recording open. Exactly. And obviously, if this does come true with this particular instance and the EU does actually move to allege Apple abused the antitrust rules, it will represent the first time that this particular technology giant has faced such charges in the EU. With the other four that you were mentioning, I believe, against uh, Amazon and Google, right? Yeah, there are a number of them with Apple as well. I think this also is highly connected. I think Epic Games has been a big catalyst of awareness. I'm not saying I'm kind of in agreement with Epic Games' take on this whole thing. I think Epic Games is taking an ask for forgiveness, not for permission type mentality by deploying features, having them implode within the Apple ecosystem, getting kicked off, then complaining very vocally and so on. I will always be on the side of if you enter in a private ecosystem with rules, you have to abide by the rules. Like you cannot, however unfair those rules might be, if the issue of the rule is within their rights, from a legal perspective, with no significant challenges, you should challenge, but you should abide by the rules while you don't get your way. In this case, they haven't done that. However, they have done a great job at spurring this impetus against Apple. Exactly. And actually, yeah, like you said, it's not just Apple. It's also a large number of US tech companies are facing mounting antitrust scrutinies from regulators around the world right now. But in the case of this specific Apple one, this particular one actually stems from a 2019 case where Spotify filed a complaint with the European Commission alleging that Apple enforced App Store rules that 
quote unquote, purposefully limit choice and shift innovation at the expense of the user experience. And they accused the company of acting as both a player and a referee to deliberately disadvantage other app developers. Now, this is because they said that with Apple's 30% commission on app store purchases, which include in-app subscriptions, this forced Spotify to charge existing subscribers $12.99 per month for its premium membership, when in reality, their premium plan is only $9.99 per month, but they were forced to charge this higher amount to cover the 30% fee. Now, Apple owns a music service called Apple Music, and they also charge $9.99 per month, but they are actually exempt from the 30% charge. And so they don't need to charge a higher amount to cover the same cost. And of course, if a user who is in the process of choosing their streaming service of choice, they may very well be swayed by the $3 difference. Now, Spotify, as you mentioned, isn't the only big brand to have actually issues with this. As you mentioned, Epic Games was also particularly vocal in this criticism of Apple. And they also filed an antitrust complaint against Apple in the EU, but they actually took a clearly planned gamble by, like you said, pushing out the update that actually introduced a new payment mechanism that allowed gamers to purchase Fortnite's in-game currency directly and bypassed Apple's in-app purchase framework, which actually is strictly forbidden by the App Store policy, as you mentioned, that they should obviously probably have abided to. And Apple, in this case, acted quickly to ban the app, which Epic was clearly ready for, as they almost immediately shared that they were actually taking legal action against Apple. And minutes after the announcement, they actually broadcast a short video inside Fortnite's Party Royale presenting a spin on Apple's iconic 1984 commercial. But the text actually in that ad was changed to read, Epic Games has defied the App Store monopoly. And in retaliation, Apple is blocking Fortnite from a billion devices. Join the fight to stop 2020 from becoming 1984. Hashtag free Fortnite, which obviously I'm not that much into the legal ongoings of these companies. But that obviously was a very epic troll move by Epic. It was definitely, definitely very epic. <laughs> the thing is, let's go back to the GNU guys. If you look at every, because every modern country has a computer abuse act of some kind. And the anchor of defining what's right and what's wrong is who owns the device. I think it is absolutely acceptable for a company that produces the device, the ecosystem, the platform, and so on, to sort of apply the tyranny of the default to their devices. So when you buy an iPhone, it will be completely acceptable if all of the defaults were pointing to Apple's ecosystem. That is cool. What I don't find cool is when you go to the app store, sorry, not to the app store, to the Apple store, even though that's you know a bit of a aspirational goal to go to the apple store nowadays but let's let's say you go to the apple store yeah and you pay a thousand five hundred pounds for a phone and a case you go home and you realize you have a single vehicle to install stuff on your phone which is the app store i don't think that's fine because in the end an iphone is more expensive than many computers you can buy it is also a computer However, you paid for it and you technically own it from a property perspective, but then you are being told by others what you can and cannot do with it, which is a big problem. I think that's a kernel of the issue. 
is not necessarily the 30% on the App Store. I think Apple is, should be free to charge whatever they want in the App Store. The problem is that they force you to go through the App Store or nothing. So the only alternative you have is to actually compromise your device and do exceptionally shady things to it to actually install things from the outside, which makes zero sense. Exactly, and also increase your risk as well when you actually jailbreak those devices. Because the whole premise is to protect your customers, right? They were saying, oh, Epic Games exposed an unapproved channel that doesn't leverage our framework, thus eliminating our ability to protect our customers. The customer needs to choose the level of protection. Epic Games was literally teaching people how to jailbreak a phone in order for them to actually install the Fortnite on there, which was actually quite crazy, I agree. <laughs> but also, in regards to that this sort of viewpoint, I actually do sort of mostly fall down on what you're saying in regards to it's Apple's environment. They obviously give you access to millions upon millions of users. So of course they have to safeguard the safety of their users and also ensure that people who come into their playground abide by their rules, which makes sense. But also in regards to the actual allegations of anti-competitive behavior, I believe that obviously that's sort of defined as when one sort of company promotes their own services and tries to stifle direct competition as well. And obviously with Apple's case, their main brand is obviously the iPhone and the App Store and services. But obviously when it comes to Spotify, and Apple Music and Apple obviously deliberately charging less for their own service as opposed to a competitor, then I could understand exactly where sort of the anti-competitiveness lies. And in this situation, I suppose it could be beneficial if Apple just also apply the same rule to the Apple Music, but that kind of then just looks like Apple is giving Apple money which obviously seems a little bit strange, but maybe not so if Apple Music is a subsidiary and then they could pay the main Apple corporation. I think it just gets very messy, but I do sort of understand the gist of where these anti-competitive allegations are coming from. I think a lot of these allegations, not, not the allegations, but the perspective of the regulator is centered on the fact that the App Store should be a level playing field for Apple and competitors. And that is just wishful thinking. Apple owns the platform. They will never be competing equally because they control feature release. They control the frameworks and the APIs and so on. They have early notice about the features that will determine the ability to monetize and track. They will never be playing on even playing field. Trying to pursue that is nonsense. What you have to pursue is the ability for people to be able to control their devices. And Apple is free to then tell people, if you deviate from the App Store, we can't guarantee your security, right? So that's what Microsoft was doing. So Microsoft, when they released the ARM64 version of Windows and then their Surface tablets and so on, they actually actively in their PR work, they alluded to the fact that if you install stuff from outside the Microsoft store, they can't guarantee their integrity. And that's cool. And that's also true. If I buy a phone for my granny, say born in the 40s, so technically challenged, I would want her to not deviate from the App Store myself right but if you are a power user or you are a person who is interested in doing the due diligence to ensure you're not executing untrustworthy code which by the way in this day and age is kind of again wishful thinking uh, <laughs> uh i think people should be able to do so that's the kernel of the issue we shouldn't focus on getting the app store to be fair for others that are not apple 
Maybe let's move on. This this is getting me. This is getting exactly. me riled up. This is the kind of thing that gets me riled up. Yeah? I love it. <laughs> How about we move up to bite-sized chunks? I have an update for you about the Google block. So what we talked about, you know, Google's white paper about the cohort system and so on. So just to just to catch up our listeners, we were talking about the Chromium project and Google's joint effort to ban third-party cookies in line with the actions of other browser manufacturers in the market. However, they will not ban third-party cookies until they have a viable platform to partially replace targeting and other technologies that support marketing. In the end, Google cannot shoot themselves in the in the foot or rather in the head <laughs> by eliminating data brokers and, and marketing agencies and so on. So they're actually testing technology of their own, but also sponsoring and collaborating with other entities to replace. So they actually wrote a blog post, which we will link in the description. The blog post is by David Temkin. That's a director of product management at Privacy and Trust. Let's not dwell on that job title because I just got a buffer overflow with that. But let's just talk about the contents on the block, yeah? So they, they just threw a couple of stats at us. They, they went, 72% of people feel that almost all of what they do online is being tracked by advertisers, technology firms, and other companies. 81% say that the potential risks they face because of data collection outweigh the benefits. Definitely. This is already so sharp, so sharp, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're making explicit that once third-party cookies are phased out, we will not build alternate identifiers to track individuals as they browse across the web, nor will we use them as our products. That last bit of the sentence is priceless, right? But I still don't want to dwell on this. They go on to say that the latest test on Flock, just to catch up our listeners if they didn't listen to ShadowSec 7 or 8 when we talked about this, Google is working along with the Chromium project on a technology that will allow identifiers to be created for groups of users with commonalities. The groups will be big enough that they will be non-threatening to individual freedom and anonymity, but they will be narrow enough that they will be useful for marketers to target their audience, right? And that's kind of the art and science of it. And there's some trade-offs and some safeguards that necessitate centralization. And we, we actually linked the paper in the show notes. It's a very short paper. We highly recommend you read it. It's also like, it flows. It's a nice nice read, so go ahead and read that. Uh, so they, they go on to say, in fact, our latest test of Flock show one way to effectively take third-party cookies out of the advertising equation and instead hide individuals within large crowds of people with common interest, as we mentioned. Chrome intends to make Flock-based cohorts available for public testing through origin trials this month. So they're talking about March. They also go on to announce that Chrome will also offer the first iteration of new user controls in April. And that links to a blog post on their own blog by the Chromium project saying, early testing of the Flock algorithm shows the new privacy-preserving solutions can be similarly effective to cookie-based approaches. So that sounds, I suppose, super promising to all of the marketing agency, data brokers, and other companies that have been hurting because of iOS 14, right? They, they go on to say, this is the Chromium project, it's great to see companies like Salesforce, White Ops, Yahoo Japan starting or preparing to test initial solutions like trust tokens, first-party sets, and conversion measurement. In fact, all developers have access to public Chrome experiments and the latest guidance can be found at web 
.dev, literally, web.dev, that's a website. So uh, we'll be looking into this, this three new privacy-respecting technologies for our next show. But in the end of the day, massive announcement by Google. Exactly. And uh, that web.dev domain would definitely fetch a high price if they ever sold it. I'm sure some dude bought it and sold it to them by like $3 million and thought he was so clever. Exactly. <laughs> he, or, he or she. But actually, this Flock initiative by Google, I think, is interesting. And even though I'm a little bit skeptical, I'm quite interested to see how it plays out in the next couple of months slash years as well. At face value, it makes quite a lot of sense. And I, I do trust Google to, in centralized fashion, watchdog the creation of the cohorts. So the proposal was fairly reasonable. I, I have no issue with that. I hope it goes for the best, definitely. However, I, I do think that the future isn't with advertising-based models. I'm actually quite hopeful for the Netflix principle to apply to many more areas that will just amalgamate to create subscription offerings that are compelling to people in ways that prevent them from paying through their attention. I think attention-based models will always be so problematic. I really hope so as well, but I'm just a bit skeptical that the general public is going to be happy to adopt a subscription-based model as a primary means when they're actually surfing the internet. I think too many people like the free and available model that is available right now. In other bite-sized chunks that we have, John McAfee was indicted on Friday for his alleged involvement in two cryptocurrency scams. And if you know his history, then obviously this is really not that much of a surprise as it wasn't to me. Uh, he is actually the guy who created McAfee Antivirus. But it is very important to note that he actually sold it a long time ago and the company now has no further relationship with him directly. A point they always feel they need to really, really vigorously highlight when things like this pop up, which is really funny. And yet, it is the 7th of March and he hasn't eaten his shoe, which he promised he would. Very true. I am still pretty heartbroken about him not eating his shoe. Very true, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to tweet him on that, actually. <laughs> then, in other news, Utah have passed a law that would mandate every new smartphone and tablet sold in their state would come pre-installed with an adult content filter activated by default. But the bill actually stipulates that its requirements don't go into effect until at least five other states have passed identical legislation, which doesn't look like it would be likely to happen. And the Uncover team, which actually ironically covers iOS jailbreaks that we were discussing about before, actually released their recent effort, which actually they claim liberates Apple devices from iOS 11 through to iOS 14.3, but it doesn't actually work on the newest iOS 14.4, which was actually released in February. Dude, I had such a sweet joke for your sanctity of your phone tidbit there, and I forgot about it. You just spoke about jailbreaking and you threw me off. Something about jail, being a saint. No, let it go, let it go. But you know what happened as well this week? Not this week, but I actually learned about it this week. So I'll tell you about it this week. Amazon <laughs> posted a number of job offerings for their emergency payments division which, by the way, are all gone and also gone from archive.org because I went to find them no longer there. They actually plan to very likely launch a cryptocurrency of their own 
However, they will not do it in the US or in London or any place or Switzerland, etc. They will do it in Mexico. We'll keep on top of this one. This is so interesting. That is very and it's actually it actually went under the radar, but I'm actually dying to learn why the choice of country. Exactly, that is actually a very interesting, intriguing aspect of it. But it goes hand in hand with Amazon's mission statement, right? I mean, they did state that they want to be the organization which will eventually take a fraction of every single transaction that occurs in the world. That is one of their early mission statements that they actually stated in the early days of Amazon. So they, they want to be their own slow moving pandemic. Basically. <laughs> okay, so I think that actually is going to wrap up another episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I want to thank all of our listeners for their time and listen, and I hope you enjoyed it. We are available on all major podcast platforms from Apple Music to Google Podcasts. So if you feel inclined to subscribe to us, for example, you might be masochistic, in which case I support it highly as long as you subscribe. Fantastic. Welcome to the show. Feel free to reach out to Jorge and I also on Twitter and feel free to email us at nima at shadowsec.com and jorge at shadowsec.com for with any of your comments and feedback. And so from Jorge and I here at ShadowSec, we wish you guys a good day and a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.